This Quadcast podcast is brought to you by the book Sitting in the Shade of Another Tree. For too long, people of faith have focused more on pointing out where other religions get it wrong. But what if we decided to focus more on all the ways those other religions get it right? This path might end up leading us into deeper understanding, connection, friendship, and peace. This was the idea behind the book that Choir Publishing and Pathios decided to assemble, gathering voices from different religious backgrounds who have learned to listen to those outside their own faith traditions. We hope that the wisdom they share with us here allows you to become more open to the truth and beauty to be found outside your own faith community. Sitting in the Shade of Another Tree, from Choir Publishing and Pathios, available now on Amazon. How can you be part of a religious community that straight up Sometimes it feels like the church is trying to hold The church on. seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the Why are they so obsessed with keep trying to give answers, I would never be a part of a church that is not welcoming The church is the most vocal political voice against immigration. Some churches still don't want to claim that worship was the actual the church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the like, culture how is that actually it seems like so much of the church is more concerned with being a good anti-critical they are being homophobic too narrow judgmental disconnected from what is truly happening in the real world <sighs> the church needs therapy welcome to the newest episode of the church needs therapy and today our guest is carl mccollman Carl is a spiritual director, retreat leader, and an internationally known speaker and teacher on mystical spirituality and contemplative living, hence why he just got back from Ireland. He is the author of many books, including The New Big Book of Christian Mysticism, which we'll be talking about today, Eternal Heart, The Mystical Path to a Joyful Life, and Unteachable Lessons, Why Wisdom Can't Be Taught and Why That's Okay. He's one of the co-hosts of the Encountering Silence podcast and blogs regularly at Patheos, Medium, and his own website. Carl's approach to contemplation and mysticism is inclusive and expansive. He's dedicated to exploring the common ground between faith traditions with a particular interest in the connecting points between Christian, Buddhist, and pagan wisdom. Carl is with his wife, artist Fran McCollman in Clarkston, Georgia, near Atlanta. I'm going to stop there. Carl... Thank you so much for being with the Church Needs Therapy listeners today and with me personally. This is a great gift, man. Thanks for coming on. Oh, I'm really thrilled to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Let's, uh, we just, uh, we were talking off air for a sec, all things Hawaii and traveling, me trying to convince Carl to come out here so we can hang out. And you started with and said, I could talk about this quote maybe the whole time, or you said something like that, the, the Carl Rahner quote. You know, the, the Christian of the future will be a mystic or nothing at all. What is that quote exactly? And tell me why, for us, is that a great place to begin? When he's saying that back then, that's a fascinating thing about interpretation is people say things that have as an intention, but what they say takes on a life beyond even their own intention because the interpreters, the, the embodiers, the practitioners like us take it and fill it with meaning and extend it because it's filled with the surplus and an excess that we enact, et cetera, in our own life. Tell the people that quote and why is that a great place to start and what does that mean for us? Okay, well, um, just to give the backstory. So Karl Rahner was a German theologian. He was Roman Catholic. He was a Jesuit priest. He lived from like, and, and I may get the dates a little wrong, but basically from like around 1902, 1904, somewhere in that area to the mid 1980s. I think he died in mm. 1984. Mm. He, um, he was one of the big movers and shakers at the Vatican II Council, which was that mm. kind of, you know, epochal council in the Catholic Church in the 1960s when the Catholic Church you know, let go of the Latin mass and became more friendly in its interreligious dialogues, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so he writes this essay, Rahner writes this essay back in the 60s called The Christian of the Future. Mm. And it's really, it, it's, it's spookily prescient mm. what he has to say. He talks about how in the future, there will be methods of communication that will link people all around the globe instantaneously. And it will give people the opportunity to connect 
with people all around the globe who have similar interests. I mean, look at you and me right now. I'm in Atlanta, you're in Honolulu, and mm-hmm. we're here because we have we have a similar approach to the Christian story and this particular moment in time. Mm. So we're kind of embodying the kinds of things Rahner was yeah. talking about back in the 1960s. <laughs> That's awesome. He, he, he predicts that Christianity, in at least in Europe and North America, will lose its kind of culturally favored mm. status, that Christianity will become more and more marginalized. What we would say today is that the cultural Christians are disappearing. Mm. He he kind of nailed that uh, 60 years ago. And then he almost as a throwaway, he mm. offers this, this kind of prescription. He says, the Christian of the future will be a mystic or will not exist at all. And of course, that begs the question, what did Rahner mean by mystic? Exactly. What, do you, what do we mean by mystic? And I, I can't presume to get into the head of a great theologian, <laughs> but my sense is, is that what he means by that is somebody whose faith journey is not just shaped by externalities. Mm. You know, it, I mean, there's there's this idea, you see it in, in the Catholic world and maybe in other corners of Christianity as well, this idea that the duty of a Christian is to pay, pray, and obey, you know, to... to, to, to <laughs> To give money to the cause, you know, to support to support the cause, to be a person of of prayer, and then to be docile and obedient towards the doctrine and the teachings of the faith. Mm. So it's very external in its understanding of authority, mm. and um, and I think Rahner is saying that's not going to fly in the mm. generations to come. Mm. That that you know there will be this increasing recognition. That if I can't own it on from the inside out, then it's not real. Hmm. And so, you know, it's interesting. I'm for my my, you know, I I I have a Patreon website. Patreon, of course, hmm. people who choose to fund my work. Um, and so I teach classes for my patrons. And the class that I'm teaching right now is on Howard Thurman's book, Meditations of the Heart. Mm. And I'm reading Loretta Coleman Brown's, just her magisterial study of Howard Thurman called What Makes You Come Alive. And she mm. talks about how Thurman, you know, who, and Thurman lives around the same time as, as Rahner. In fact, he died in 1981. Yeah, they were almost exact contemporaries. But Thurman writing back in the 1950s talks about the importance of the inner authority mm. that that if if we are not being faithful to our own inner authority then our lives are going to be shaped by forces over which we have no control it's fascinating here is this this you know man of color this person of color this african american baptist preacher who has steeped himself in the great mystics making Mm. this profoundly mystical teaching Mm -hmm. back in the 1950s, 15 years before Karl Rahner even, you know, makes his famous statement. So, so this idea of a mystic, somebody who is faithful to their inner authority, that doesn't necessarily mean that you just blow off Mm. the tradition or the teachings or the wisdom of Jesus, you know, but that you meet that teaching with your own authenticity. And it becomes this question of, I'm not just going to obey it because my mom and dad told me I should, or because my youth pastor told me I should, or whatever, or I read some book that said, this is what good Christians do. Mm. But rather, I'm going to receive the wisdom and filter it through the authority of my own experience and Mm. ask these hard questions. You know, when Jesus says something like, love your enemies or forgive lavishly, you know, be a person of mercy or whatever, what does that mean for me? How does that land in my body? How does Mm. that land in my life? That's Mm. what I think Rahner is saying when he's saying Mm. that that is going to be essential to the survival of the Christian faith. And I'll say one other thing. Mm, Yeah, please. You know, in, in again, Rahner writes this in the 1960s. He dies in the 80s. Here you and I are in the 2020s. You mm. know, it's been over half a century since Rahner made that comment. I would argue that Rahner's Christian of the future is you're and my Christian of today. Mm. And that we are already seeing the fruit of Rahner's warning. You know, institutional Christianity is absolutely in free fall. And, um, you know, the, certainly in North America, certainly in Europe, and and even in other parts of the world, I think the argument, even where you're seeing churches growing, maybe you know, like in 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 the Southern Hemisphere, 
I would argue that in another generation or two, that movement is going to reverse, just like the mega church movement of the 80s and 90s in, in North America. You know, there were books being published, why conservative churches are growing. You know, that was the whole narrative was that if you're a conservative church, you're faithful to the gospel, mm, mm. God is going to bless you. But we have seen that that had a short shelf life. Mm. And so today, even the mega churches are, are, are experiencing contraction. So yeah, so so Rahner's warning that that Christianity will not even exist if it abandons its own mystical heart is already coming true. And so the interesting mm. question I think for you and me mm. is what is this mysticism that he's talking about and how can that make a difference both in our lives as individual people but also in terms of community and mm. in terms of what it means to have a community of faith. I'm going to try to avoid using the word church because church brings us into, into institution. And one of my mm. beliefs is that the church of the future is going to look a whole lot different than the church of the present, mm. certainly the church mm, of the past. Interesting. Yeah. Hello. That, I mean, that's that's the first question. That's, that's I was going to say that's the first question. That's not even a question. We, we got that much good stuff just off of, you know, mentioning the one quote we talked about. So good. Yeah. Oh, there, there's so much there and so much, so many directions to go. And, you know, Thurman, you know, back then, even had this is not verbatim, but has a quote, you know, saying like, what a joy it is to basically sink down and watch oneself pass by, you know, this profound awareness of awareness, third, or perhaps even fourth person perspective to see this experience of holes and see his own individual identity transcended in a part of a much larger. I mean, that's people are still not there, you know, to even fully grasp what he's saying right there. And <clears throat> the institutional stuff. And even, I think it's an important one when we talk about the mystics and this direct experience. And like you said, an embodied form of knowing the inner authority is an embodied place. The location of the compass is deep within. And that doesn't completely negate or eliminate the role of beliefs, but I believe it does change you know, the the way we think about and even relate to our beliefs. Hopefully people have more of an awareness that we are not our beliefs and whoever we are is beneath, before, and beyond those beliefs. And even does not eliminate, like you say, but changes the way we relate to practices and rituals and traditions. And it allows us to inhabit those in a completely different way. Hopefully recognizing the tradition is not God and that the symbol is not the substance of what we're talking about. So let's, let's, before we talk about the relationship with beliefs, let's say a little bit more, you know, the, 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 the Christian of the future is a mystic or nothing at all. With all of your personal experience, study of the Christian and the perennial tradition of the mystics, the seers, the great knowers and lovers of God and the friends of reality, who are, the mystics, you know, what are the mystics, right? This great lineage that transcends any specific religious tradition. What's the connecting point and shared vision of that experience for the ones that we call mystics historically and today? Well, I think the best way for me to approach this is to just tell, and I'll try to be brief, but to tell a little bit of my own story. Yeah, please. Um, you know, I am um, you know, I'm a middle-class, white, assigned male at birth kind of person post-World War II. I was born in 1960, you know, so I grew up in the 60s and 70s. And, um, you know, I, my mom and dad were Lutheran, mainline Protestant. That was the world that I, I kind of grew up in. And um, I was at a church camp when I was 16 years old was not looking for this at all. If anything, I was there to look for pot and girls, which is totally <laughs> honest. Um, and I basically have an unembodied experience of the presence of God. Mm. And it was a Saturday night communion service. This is 1977. So we're singing, you know, Kumbaya, they'll know we are Christians by our love, that kind of mm. stuff. And, you know, it was just, again, I could spend the next 20 minutes talking about what happened. Probably mm. only lasted a minute or two, but it, it felt like time stood still. It's like, you know, there's there's a, a Zen Buddhist book called Each Moment is the Universe. And when I mm. look at that title, I think about what happened to me in 1977. 
the the moments of that Eucharist became the universe for me. Mm, the the mm. room was flooded with light. I was flooded with love. Mm. There was just this incredible sense of presence there, this sense of relationality of knowing. It was just absolutely beautiful. Mm. And it and it recedes. It, it's like it happens and it recedes. And then I'm talking to people. I I thought something objectively miraculous had happened. I'm mm. so naive, this, you know, this pimply little kid, you know, <laughs> and I'm like, wasn't that the most amazing experience ever? And my friends were like, yeah, you know, that was great. Let's go grab a Coke. Mm. And I had to pull back. I, there was a dance after, you know, so yeah, you have, you know, a hotel full of hormone raging teenagers. What do you do? You have a dance, you know, after, <laughs> after the communion service. I didn't go to the dance. I went back mm. to my room and just tried to process what had happened. So, you know, so church for me, I was a cultural Christian, mm. right? You know, I was, I, you know, back in the seventies, there were more cultural Christians than there are today. I was mm. a cultural Christian and I was a cultural Christian that somehow, you know, mm -hmm. something punched through, right. call it the presence of God, call it just my own deep unconscious yearning for the mystery. I, I, I can't explain it, but something punched through that connection was made and and my life was changed forever and and i and so 1977 guess what i did i fell in with the charismatics because nice. they were the only christians i could find who were talking about an experiential relationship exactly the lutherans were so stuck in their head mm. you know and um and again, God loved the Lutherans, but, mm -hmm. um, but, it, but it just, you know, I went and tried to talk about this with my pastor and he looked at me like I'd sprung a second head. I mean, it just mm -hmm. was so off of his map. And um, so I fall in with the charismatics and before you know it, I have a baptism of the Holy Spirit experience. I'm speaking in tongues, doing, mm -hmm. you know, I'm just kind of doing the thing. But then I bumped into, uh, call a spade a spade, toxic theology. Mm. And a theology that was very much afraid of the devil, a theology mm. that was dualistic, is afraid of the human body, is certainly mm. afraid of sexuality, you mm. know. And and I'm I have been plugged into this ego-shattering experience of love. Mm. And the only people I know who can even talk about that are have overlaid on it this incredibly dualistic theology. Mm, yeah, yeah. And it has taken me a long time to come to realize that there is a certain dimension within the Christian community that tries to meet the unbounded, completely untamable experience of God with an incredibly dualistic theology. Mm. And it's, I believe, a subconscious attempt to maintain some sense of control or order. Exactly. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, and fortunately, I had enough, you know, to use Howard Thurman's language, enough fidelity to my own inner experience mm. that I realized this didn't add up. And 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 so I what basically began was my never ending kind of conflicted relationship with the institution. Christianity mm. is an institution. You know, mm. I love the name of this podcast because boy, does the church need therapy. I mean, I <laughs> I, I need therapy too, but I do Church needs to get its butt into therapy. But, um, so you know, so thus begins this long journey. The next really important thing for me, a year or two later, it's right when I'm graduating from high school. I have a dream in which the world seems to be coming to the end. Mm. And I share this dream with a friend of mine who was he was a Unitarian. Gotta love those crazy Unitarians. Mm. And he gives me Evelyn Underhill's book on mysticism. Mm. He says, boy, that was a pretty deep dream. Maybe you should read this. I pick up that book. Now, this is a book. Uh, she was a Church of England layperson writing like in 1911 or so. And she was, she was a student of the mystics. Mm. And I read this book and it was like, there's my tribe. These are the mm, people mm. who are speaking the language that resonates with my experience, but they haven't overlaid that crazy dualistic theology. In fact, if anything, and I didn't have the language for it, but their theology was a non-dual theology, mm. you know, a theology of unity, a theology of coming together, a theology where the love of, this is the way I like to describe non-duality. If you're standing on the North Pole, every direction you look is South. If you are immersed in the presence of God, every direction you look is love. 
Mm. And so that's Christian non-duality. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and, and, and again, you know, too many Christians who are caught up in the dualisms, especially since the Reformation. And I think it's just as bad on both the Protestant and the Catholic side, but this kind of dualistic theology that is based on, I, I'm alienated from my own body and I look for authority outside of me. If you're Catholic, you look at the Pope and the church. If you're Protestant, you look at sola scriptura. But either way, you're you're alienating yourself from yourself and, and your theology is a theology of submission to an external mm, authority. Mm, now, mm. Let, let me be clear. I don't think Christianity is a, a mystical Christianity is not hostile to the mm. church or to the to scripture mm. but it but it sees the authority of the community and the authority of the tradition because that's what we're talking about church mm. community scripture tradition the authority of community and tradition are balanced with the authority that comes from within mm. and and you could even you could even see the trinity there you know that mm. the father represents the tradition the son the body of christ represents the community and the holy spirit represents that that sacred presence in each of our hearts mm. And so mm. our, our authority, a, a mystical authority is an authority that that takes all three of those seriously. Mm. Back to your question. So I'm reading Evelyn Underhill and from Evelyn Underhill, I just I discover the mystical tradition. So I discover mm. voices like Julian of Norwich, Teresa of Avila, um, mm. John of the Cross, mm. Meister Eckhart, you know, mm. and then of course, then I begin to discover more contemporary voices, people like Howard Thurman, who we've already mentioned, Thomas Merton, mm. um, you know, uh, uh, Rufus Jones, uh, Anthony DeMello, uh, Polly Murray, Desmond Tutu, the list goes mm, on mm. and on and on. And just realizing that there is this lineage, this, this tradition within the Christian community that takes that inner experience seriously. And that, and that out of that recognizes that our God is not a God of dualism, a God that is separating the good from the bad, but is a God of healing that is mm. seeking to transform those places within us that need healing and need transformation so that we are all brought into the dance. It's a, mm. it's a totally different paradigm. I like to say the first is a juridical paradigm. It's all about the courtroom. It's all about who's guilty and who's innocent. The second is a therapeutic paradigm. Jesus is the healer, you know, mm. where, where whenever there is anything that is resistant to love, that's not something that needs to be condemned. It's something that needs to be transformed. Mm, and again, that's, mm. that is the more non-dual approach mm. that I do believe, you know, back to Carl Rahner, I do believe that the Christian community, well, I believe we've been called into that from the beginning, but after mm. 2000 years, it's not too late. And that that is how the spirit is moving in the lives of so many people, mm. just calling us into this deeper, you know, immersion into love and then letting the eyes of love literally shape how we, how we mm. live our lives and how we build our relationships. Mm, yes. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. I want I want to make a comment. I want to, then I'm going to follow up that. I'm going to follow that up with a question. One, I, I find it so fascinating with, you know, the different, the, the interior and the exterior and the desire or the natural orientation people have to be obedient to sort of God as an external object out there. And I'm like, it's so fascinating to hear adults talk about obedience to God because it still feels like a a 12 year old begrudgingly going to church. Like, well, I gotta, it's kind of like, I don't like it, but that's what it says. So I got to do it. I'm like, that does not sound like an invitation to a feast where everything is available. That's a very different feel to this, where everything's an invitation. Um, but here's here's my follow-up to that. There's, you know, you go off on this poetic, beautiful rant. We're talking about love, you know, in, in a great way. I, I'm known to rant myself. I mean, that you, you, there's an immediate connection here. So you go off in this beautiful poetic rant slash invita- poetic invitation, right? This sort of imagining of a different way of being in God, of following Jesus, et cetera. And it's about love and it's about unity. It's an invitation and it's not obedience to an external authority, but an invitation to move beyond anything that's getting in the way of love, right? Totally different way of approaching this. And I'm with you. And I'm like, yes. And I have my own version of, you know, calling people into this. And I was at an event probably eight years ago and it was about, you know, unfolding consciousness, spiral dynamics and 
enfolding spirituality, et cetera, right? Stuff most of most pastors would not, you know, probably want their congregations to go to. And yet it was amazing. And I was there and actually, you know, after one of the sessions, we're out like grabbing a beer or whatever. And I go off on a rant, like one of the ones you just went on and out, out to a group of people at the table and a guy there who is, you know, uh, much more evangelical than I am. And by me, I mean, I'm not. He's like looking at me with a smirk as I'm saying it all, you know, because we have a good relationship. And he, And then as I finish, he's like, you know, Kev, when you talk like that, it's like I'm hopping on a bus with you and you're taking me on an adventure. And when I look out the window, everything just looks so free and so beautiful. But then he says, but I just can't go with you. Why not? Why couldn't? Exactly. That's what I'm asking. <laughs> and so, well, what he's what he's saying that, but he represents a larger why is it hard for people to go there with me or you? Because there's a larger thing people are moving into. Meaning, what is the resistance to a less externally demanding, more free-flowing? The Celtics talk about the spirit as the wild goose, right? The sort of more wild, untamed thing. What, what, where do you? Where is the resistance to that, do you think, for institutions or for individuals? Well, you know... Um... There is, so I wrote a book on the heart hmm. and, and then the book is very biblically based. I'm, I'm just pulling passages, both Hebrew scriptures and new Testament, pulling passages about the heart. And, and the book is just my meditation on all of these passages. And of course they're amazing. I mean, all of these passages talk about gifts in our heart. You know, God has placed eternity in the human heart. That's where the title comes from eternal heart. And, you know, God has poured love into our heart. God has placed the spirit in our heart, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's like the heart is this treasury, this chalice that has received all these amazing gifts. And so I'm writing about this in my blog. And of course, somebody comes up and don't ask me to give you chapter and verse, but it's from Jeremiah. This passage in Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all else who can trust it. And it was almost as if the person was saying this one kind of cynical comment in Jeremiah mm. negates all of the positive comments, mm. all of the blessings and the gifts that the, that the entire Bible suggests are in our heart, but the heart is deceitful. You can't trust it. Mm. And, um, and, and of course I really had to reflect on that and do my own kind of study and my own research and the way I, and so I, I mean, I'm glad he did it because I was able to address it in the book. And I basically said in the book, well, you know what? The heart can deceive. The mm. heart can make exactly. mistakes. I think that's, I think there's an honesty there that Jeremiah is cautioning us about. Um, but I think, you know, you've got this one, kind of negative or cynical comment compared to these eight or nine really positive comments, I said, can we keep this in perspective? Mm. And this is my point, is that I do think, first of all, I think we live in a profoundly, profoundly cynical culture. Mm. We live in a culture that is deeply pessimistic. Mm. I think we are still, it's been less than a hundred years, we are still working out the trauma of the Second World War. We're mm. still working out the trauma of the enslavement of, of people from Africa, the, the, the slaughter, the genocide of, of indigenous peoples all around the world. Mm. There has been so much collective trauma in on our planet. And I think that there is a certain segment of the population, including the Christian population, that has retreated into this kind of deep, deep cynicism. The world is just, I, I, want, I want to start dropping F-bombs, but I'm not Nadia Bowles-Weber, so I won't do it. <laughs> the world is deeply messed up. The mm. world is, um, you know, that, that we can't trust one another. We can't trust any institutions. We can't trust democracy. I mean, look at the political climate in America today. Mm. It is 
built on mistrust, you know, mm. and, and we're, we're watching the Republican Party being eaten from the inside right now. You know, this mm. is we're recording this during this the speaker battle. And, mm. um, you know, and 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 it's just, you know, so this this cynicism is so, so pervasive and how I think it plays out in Christianity is this idea that that you hear the message of love, you hear the message of hope. And you just retreat into that's too good to be true. That mm. really the truth is that we are terrible sinners and God is furiously angry at us. And if mm. we don't placate God, and we can only do that through Jesus because we are incapable of pleasing God on our own. I mean, messages that I know are all drawn from, from scripture, but it's 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 almost like we have cherry-picked the mm. darkest lines of thinking in scripture and have built our theology this this the this deeply cynical theology around it and mm. um you know and and in the catholic world there's this concept called jansenism and it's really it's almost like catholic calvinism because jansenius was a student of john calvin's mm. and and it was it was rejected as a heresy by the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church said, no, wait a minute, this kind of Catholic Calvinism, this isn't truth. We don't accept this as truth. And yet to this day, I would tell you many, many Catholic Christians, their thinking is deeply, deeply Jansenist because Jansenism mm. was dualistic. It hated the body. It hated mm. sexuality. Mm. It was deeply patriarchal. It didn't trust women. You know, all of these qualities that we also see in, in ultra conservative Christianity. And so I think that, that you know, that back to the church needs therapy. Mm -hmm. I, I think, you know, the church is profoundly depressed mm. that the church has this has has taken this narrative out of scripture, which is not the only narrative, but it's right. taken it and ran with it. And it's become a self-fulfilling prophecy that the mystics, people like Julian of Norwich or Meister Eckhart, you know, or um, Teilhard de Chardin, and these people mm. who offer these incredibly hope-filled, you know, counter-narratives are just swatted away. Mm. And I think that's the dynamic that you ran into with your colleague at that conference mm. Mm. a couple mm. of years ago. You know, it's mm. the story about Rob Bell, you know, and putting, you know, there was a there was a what a, 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 an art show or something at his church and somebody put a piece up with Gandhi in it. And then somebody takes a post-it note and sticks it on it and says, Gandhi is in hell. You know, number one, really bad theology. How can anybody declare anybody to be in hell? And then, and then number two, just this, you know, this default setting that we've, we've got to, we've got to go with the most cynical reading of history or the most cynical reading of cosmology or anthropology, that that's what is truth. And so I think we have a lot, a lot of headwinds to fight mm. against. But let me say one, one more thing about mm. love. There is a fashionable kind of cynicism about love in our culture that you know that love is weak that love is just again it's squishy it's funny i just had a negative review of my book on amazon and that was the person's <laughs> comment he said he said this book is squishy and i'm like gee i wish you gave some examples of the squish because i don't know what you're talking about you know but i think it's 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 this kind of you know what he's saying is that this is a book that's that dares to say that the heart of christian mysticism is love and love is squishy. Well, you know, love is love doesn't have an edge. And yet love has a profound edge because love says we meet conflict with forgiveness. We meet we meet conflict with a commitment to reconciliation. Mm. We meet conflict with this basic trust that even though we bitterly disagree with the person on the other side, that person is not our enemy. And if they are our enemy, we're called to love them anyways. Mm, yeah. So so really, Christian love is profoundly dynamic, profoundly committed to reconciliation mm. and community and, and bringing people together. And that is hard, hard hard mm. work mm. and you know and it goes back to gk chesterton he said the problem is not that christianity has been found deficient the problem is that christianity has been found difficult and has been left untried mm. and um and i'm sure i'm paraphrasing and then merton said something very similar where he basically said most christians 
opt for legalism because the demands of charity are just too great. Mm, you know, yeah. It's like we, 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 we love is so demanding that it's easier just to settle for the rules and our job is to follow the rules. And then mm. we really, we're kind of absolved of our need to orient our lives towards love. And it's just, again, that's the cynicism that I think is so pervasive within institutional Christianity. And this is why I think institutional Christianity is dying. And I'm just mm. going to come right out and say it. I believe it's dying. I believe it's it that, that will there be, you know, the Phyllis Tickle, will there be some sort of re new reformation? Probably, you know, mm. but, but I do think that the old model that most of us grew up with is past its sell-by date because yeah. it was so embedded in that dualistic way of thinking. And young people are saying, no, thank you. I'm not interested, mm. you know? And, yeah. And I think, yeah, the, yeah, no, I appreciate those comments about the not not what he's saying, but, you know, your response to like the idea of squishiness and yep. people think any it's like people, the same people who might have that that strong need for an external object to obey, like God for hell, for punishment, for retribution, you know, see any form of grace and love as, you know, lacking teeth or lacking power or lacking authority because of the way they see things. And I'm actually in the middle when we're done, I'm going to return to it, but I'm the, the next book I'm writing. It's, it's about the cosmic Christ and the concrete Jesus. Uh -huh. And this chapter I'm writing right now is about the vulnerability of power and the power of vulnerability of the Christ and the vulnerability to keep your heart open like the god who knocks on the door not knowing if you're going to open that is not squishy at all to open to for me i'm a, i'm almost i'm about to turn 39 actually like next week and to me to dare to keep your heart open you know like mirabai star says you know to keep the heart open despite every reason not to there's reasons to close down the heart. There's reasons to be bitter, to be angry, personal ones because of things we've experienced and then existential ones and larger social and global ones if you're just paying attention. And so to keep the heart open because of love and to dare to keep offering yourself with no guarantees of how other people are going to respond, that kind of perpetual infinite outpouring, there is nothing squishy or weak about that you know and that's the even in the chapter when i'm talking about paul like when i'm weak i'm strong i'm like that which we see as weakness the opening up and the giving of ourselves without controlling or coercing or whatever it is i've known a lot of people who by traditional forms of masculinity are very strong and tough in this world i'm sure you have too to choose to be honest with yourself or with others through vulnerability without trying to control requires more real strength than all of those other versions of men trying to do whatever they want, you know? So anyways, I think that's, it's an important well, one to, you land it all. It's like when WB Yeats is like, it, this is a paraphrase, but it takes more courage to basically explore the depths of your own inner life than it does to enter onto a battlefield. It's like, there's a lot of people who have the strength to use force but then if you ask them to be honest and vulnerable and open up about that, which is truly inside of them, all of a sudden they go, it could, people could go running because that is, that's a whole different kind of strength. Or, or they, or they literally have nothing to say. It's like, there's no language for it because they've never done the work. And mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. you run into that, you know, listening to you, Kevin, I'm reminded of, um, it's a wonderful scene in the movie Selma about Martin Luther King Jr., mm. which um, I'm reading. I, I mentioned Loretta Coleman Brown's book on Howard Thurman right now, and she she mentions that. So it's a historical thing. It wasn't just a Hollywood moment. But Martin Luther King Jr. is leading the civil rights march to cross the Pettus Bridge in Selma. And the first time that they did that, he he stops them. In the movie, it's so dramatic. And it's mm. just, you know, it's like there isn't even a soundtrack. There's just ambient noise. You hear birds and that mm. kind of thing. And he prays. And mm. they all get down on their knees and pray with him. And mm. he prays for like a minute or two. And then he stands up and he says, we're not going to cross the bridge. Mm. And and he, they turn around and they leave. And 
you know, and of course he got criticized for this. It's like, why are we backing down now? You know, when we were there and he's like, you know, it, it was just call it the energy. He was, you know, it's just what he was picking up from the, the, the white police officers and their dogs. Who knows? But think about it. It took incredible strength to be there in the first place, hmm. to be facing the institutionalized racism of the deep south in the 1960s mm -hmm. um and then the the incredible courage to say no we're not going to poke the bear today we are we are going to hold back and we are going to wait until we receive the that again that inner authority saying today's the day we cross the bridge mm -hmm. so it was not a, def a a retreat it was a a, a profound recognition of not mm -hmm. yet Mm. And yet, of course, and the movie does go into this a little bit. And I don't know, I don't know the, the history of the civil rights movement to be able to comment on what happened, you know, in, in actuality. But in the movie, you know, people criticize Dr. King and they're like, you know, that was weak. You know, that was squishy. You know, mm -hmm. and yet he was trying to be faithful again to that inner authority. So it was, it was, you know, it was the vulnerable power on top of vulnerable power. Uh -huh. And and this is the kind of model that I think we need more and more of in our culture. This model that is absolutely resolute in its willingness to oppose injustice or evil or oppression, privilege, I mean, however you want to frame it, but absolutely from a place of what we're in it for is reconciliation. What we're in it for is ultimately bringing people together. This mm. isn't just naked power where, you know, in order for me to win, you've got to lose. Mm, but we exactly. have to, we have to try to find a third alternative, an alternative that is ultimately sustainable and ultimately about building relationships. Mm. And, um, you know, and I look at today's political climate on both sides of the the political spectrum and i feel like that voice is is really in short supply that mm. there is so much anger and so much demonization of the other side mm. you know and yes you know there's there's plenty of reasons to say oh that side they did this 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 they're our enemy and mm. yet jesus's voice love your enemy that gets mm. lost in the shuffle mm. Mm. so you know mm. so it, it, yeah. it is it is an incredibly powerful, you know, and I mentioned MLK, but the other one, of course, to look at is Gandhi, who, who mm. I mentioned in passing earlier, you know, and and to think that, you know, Gandhi literally brought the British Empire, the might of the British Empire to its knees, mm. um, you know, that, that that kind of power absolutely can change history, but it is mm. absolutely built on vulnerability mm. and on compassion mm. and on, 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 you know, a vision of a world that brings people together and mm. isn't just about naked power. Yeah. And, and, you know, and this is what I think really breaks my heart about how Christianity has kind of gone off the rails in the last 40 or 50 years is that there is, you know, there is this loss of the Howard Thurman, Martin Luther King uh, brand of Christianity that is so deeply committed mm. to reconciliation. Mm. And, and, and I hope, you know, as the church gets its therapy, I hope mm -hmm. that that's something that can be reclaimed. Yeah. And again, you know, I think that that's, that's something that you see in the voice of the mystics again and again as well. Yeah. And I think the, what you're doing is you're, you're naturally anticipating a question I had about the social dimension of the life of mystics and why, the mystical knowing and being known by God so naturally lends itself to and gives birth to a commitment to justice and the social dimension and the natural link between those two. But I want to make sure people know the new big book of Christian mysticism. I want to talk about that. So why? So this book was originally released in 2010. Now we have a revised and updated version 13 years later, which I'm really I love to see that because there's certain times where you're like that book or that album or that thing a person did creatively and culturally in that moment, like that thing could be extracted and released here with, you know, in a new way. And it like, it doesn't, it has a new possibility and a new birth and it's born again. Right. So why 13 years later for you personally, for Broadleaf, why does that, makes sense why is there is what is the fresh space of possibility for that book right now because I, I believe well, there is one 
Well, first of all, props to Broadly for being willing to make the commitment awesome. because there is obviously for the publisher, there's an investment, an investment of, of resources, but also of, of, you know, person hours to, to, to construct a new book. Um, there's nothing magic about the year 13. I mean, this got delayed by, by the pandemic and, you know, and of course the, the book was originally published by a different publisher. I, I was, I originally pitched to do a 10th anniversary edition and nice. it was just, the book was in that uncanny valley where it was selling enough to stay in print, but not selling enough for the publisher to justify the old publisher to justify mm. putting that kind of investment. And gotcha. so the publisher said, look, we're, we're just going to keep, it ain't broke. Don't fix it. We're going to keep. And, and there was, there were certain things I wanted to do kind of exactly what you were saying to bring the book a little bit more up to date. The first edition of the book is very Eurocentric mm. um, mystical Christianity. As I I'm embedded in it. I'm embedded very much in the European tradition. So the European tradition is still very much present in the new edition, but really trying to be conscious about bringing voices in from other parts of the globe, bringing mm. in voices of, of the, the mystics of color, you know, that kind mm. of thing. So, you know, so having that also that the first edition didn't have enough of a commitment to the Jewish contribution to mysticism. So I really mm. wanted to, to, so there were changes I wanted yeah, to make yeah, in the book. Yeah. And, um, and, and when, when I, I, I went to Broadleaf, I, I basically followed an editor to Broadleaf and Broadleaf did my eternal heart book. We had a great experience. They seemed to be really happy with me. They were happy with the book. And, you know, and at that point I, I was talking to my editor, of course, my agent knew about this. And I said, you know, my dream project is to revise my mm. my big book of Christian mysticism, and God bless Broadleaf, they they got into conversation with the original publisher. They bought the rights, mm. and they bought the rights basically to say to me, "Okay, here it is. Revise it." That's cool. And and originally it was just going to be a revision, but of course this is during the pandemic. I had a lot of time on my hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it you know what was a three hundred page book became a four hundred page book. Mm. So and I think that's why they ended up putting the word new in the title because it really is a new book nice. and um you know and i mean it still follows the structure of the old book there you know there are many chapters that that people will recognize if they've read the book but it literally is line by line by line edited uh so uh, and a lot of new material again 25 percent new material five new chapters a number of chapters have new material added in and um and and again just trying to be more faithful to what you know what i believe a statement about christian mysticism the promise and the possibility of christian mysticism at this point in time you know in the, in the 2020s looks like and so you know i'm hoping that people that enjoyed the first book will give the new book a try yeah and if you haven't read the book I, I i just think the new book is really the way to go so yeah no it's great so, yeah that's, you know, yeah it's thanks. awesome it's yeah no i love talk about it i love the uh the intentionality you know, and the reasons and the energy going into the updating. And besides the publishing part, do you feel like we're people who, you know, whether in publishing and writing and the relationships we have, we pay attention to a subgenre of a subgenre, you know, a subculture within a culture that like, it's just funny to spend so much energy with something that most people don't explicitly think about or care about. You know, I just, there's something just hilarious about that to me, but from what you've seen, when, when you look at in, in North America, in the U S specifically, you know, where the church is, what to me, sometimes I think what was happening 15 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago on a, on the edges of the culture is moving much more to the center and happening on a collective level. Like the conversations you used to have with three friends drinking a couple of beers, you know, about what you're reading and learning and growing beyond and transcending. And how do you stay connected? All that stuff is now happening at a collective level through podcasts, through media, through everything from, from the pulpit, people are talking about these things. Do you feel like even, even 10 to 15 years later, is there, is this, are people more primed and ready to hear the invitation that we might hear you know, in this book? You know, I, I would imagine so. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not Richard Rohr. I don't have that kind of a platform, 
But Richard Rohr does have that kind of a platform. And the fact that, what is it? Half a million people, it's a huge number, 400,000, 500,000 people get his daily email. Mm. And Rohr is unapologetic in talking Mm. about contemplative spirituality and the role of the mystics and that relationship between the inner life and social justice. All of that is just, that's his bread and butter. And, um, and so I think the fact that, that he continues to have a growing following that, you know, that there are other significant teachers out there like, you know, Cynthia Bergeau or, you know, Lawrence Freeman, uh, Tilden Edwards of the Shalem Institute, you know, various people like that who are, you know, workers in the vineyard trying to, you know, to call people within Christianity, but also outside of the institutional church Mm. into that more contemplative approach to spirituality. You know, I think Roar wouldn't be Roar without the fact that a half a million people have said, yes, I want to read what he has to say. Mm. Mm. And, And so, you know, it's and and I think the fact that Broadleaf was willing to take a chance on this book, you know, is even though I don't have the platform Richard Rohr has, it's it speaks to, you know, it's not about me, it's not about Carl, but it is about mysticism. And the mm. fact that it does seem that this is a topic that I do think more and more people, both inside and outside the institution, are going to be taking seriously in mm. the years to come. So yes, my answer to your question is absolutely. Yeah. I'll tell you what has surprised me. Okay, so I'm I'm a lay person. I don't have a seminary degree. I, I, I got into this because of my own spiritual practice and my own spiritual path. Mm. And, um, you know, and what has surprised me almost from when the first book was published is seeing how many clergy persons, whether they're in active ministry or they've moved on to other things, but people who have invested their own lives into Christian ministry ha- are taking this topic seriously. And mm. so, and that gives me a lot of hope. Um, you know, I mean, I I know my book gets used in seminaries. Now, it's, wow. I mean, I'm no Walter Brueggemann. It's not on that level. <laughs> But, but I do know, I mean, people write to me and they're like, oh, I read your book for, you know, at such and such a seminary. That's cool. And um, and so knowing, I mean, I, 50 years ago, if you had told me that mysticism was being taught in Christian seminaries, I would have laughed. Mm. I would have said it in my dreams. And, mm. and I know it's still not mainstream. It's still on the margins. Mysticism is always on the margins. Mm-hmm. But the fact that that there are more and more people in you know, in positions of leadership within the Christian community that are taking these kinds of topics seriously, I I think does speak to a lot of hope. I still maintain what I said earlier, that I think the institution of Christianity is going to change radically in the next 50 Mm -hmm. to 100 years. I agree with Phyllis Tickle, we're in the middle of another reformation, and none of us knows what it's going to look like when the dust settles. But mm. but I think, you know, I have to keep reminding myself that I didn't sign up for an institution. I signed mm. up for a person and that person's teachings, mm. you know, uh, and that um, I do believe that Jesus is committed to community. And I do mm. believe to be a follower of Jesus, we have to take community seriously on some way, shape or form. But I don't think that necessarily means, you know, the congregational church on the corner. Mm. Um, I just think. I I think that, you know, we have different communications technology than we've ever had before, different ways of disseminating information. You know, I mean, even just the fact that I can pull up Meister Eckhart and do do a string search to to see what Meister Eckhart had to say about silence or had to say about, you know, inner transformation or whatever the topic is, that, you know, I have access to, you know, to an immediacy of information that Evelyn Underhill didn't have a hundred years ago. Mm, mm, and, and, and if anything, that, that technology, that communications technology and research technology, I mean, look at AI. I mean, none of us know where that's going to take us, mm. but um, you know, but, but the capacity to, to really begin to, to, you know, balance out what, 
what the tradition is teaching us, I think, is going to lead to a completely, you know, revisiting of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ and what it means mm-hmm. to take seriously the Sermon on the Mount and the other, you know, just the radical teachings of Jesus and of Jesus's followers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I have incredible faith in the tradition, even while I'm pretty cynical these days about the institution. Uh, and and uh, I think that's that's a nuance I hope a lot of people, whether they're inside or outside the institution, would really take to heart and be in discernment over. You know, if 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 you know First Methodist Church of your neighborhood is closing down, that doesn't mean that Christianity is closing down. Exactly. And um and it's something that I think all of us, but I think we also have to really be creative and recognize that the Christianity we pass on to our grandchildren is going Mm. to look a lot different than the Christianity our grandparents passed on to us Mm. and that that is okay. As long as we're, we're still wrestling with the teachings, Mm. that's okay. I mean, you know, you mentioned this at the beginning and I, and I just have to say it because it's so much important to me that I think the future of Christianity will include radical inner spiritual engagement. Yes. Christians, learning from Buddhists, Christians learning from mm. Sufi, uh, Christians sharing with Buddhists and Sufis. It's not, it's a two-way street, mm. but that that our our relationship with other faith traditions is not going to be weaponized. It's not going to be, I'm going to learn about Buddhism so I can show the Buddhists why they need Jesus. Mm-hmm. But it's rather, you know, I'm, I want to learn about the teachings of Buddha. And as I learn about the teachings of Buddha, I'll share the teachings of Jesus. And then it's up to the Holy Spirit what people do with that. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. to have that kind of radical humility with how we do evangelism. That evangelism is no longer about getting butts into pews. Evangelism mm-hmm. is about just the free sharing of the teachings. Here are the teachings. We're going to give it away. And then mm-hmm. radically trusting the Spirit to be at work in people's hearts, whether people identify as Buddhist or Muslim or Jewish mm. or new age or SBNR or whatever. And then, you know, and, and some of us still identify as Christian, you know, we still mm. go to church on Sunday morning. That's great. You know, mm. but, but it's less and less about how we identify. It's less and less about, you know, who we give our money to. And it's more and more about the fact that we're willing to be in conversation with these teachings and to mm. let these teachings shape every area of our life. But if we're, you know, if we're drawn to study with, you know, a Buddhist teacher, study with the Buddhist teacher. Mm. Don't get caught up in, oh, wait a minute, that's not Christian. <laughs> it's like, you know, I mean, it, it's like, you know, I use an Apple computer. The Steve Jobs wasn't a Christian as best as I know. In fact, I think he was probably a Buddhist. But, you know, I'm, I'm willing to use that technology. Well, the Buddha offered us a technology, a, a, uh, a, a mind technology. And uh, so to have that that sense of openness and that sense of we're part of the global community and we have these amazing teachings from this amazing person who walked in Palestine 2000 years ago that uh, we still have uh, not unpacked. How many people do you know truly love their enemies? I know I don't love my enemies. Uh, you know? I, I will uh, confess it right now. I fail at that. Uh, as, a, as a follower of Jesus Christ, I fail at that. <laughs> but the point is, is I take that teaching seriously and I aspire to be a little mm. bit better at that mm. tomorrow. Yeah, so you know, good. and that that if all of us can just have that kind of humility and to say, I don't have this figured out, it the teachings are beyond me, but I'm willing to give it a shot because I really believe in what these teachings represent. Mm. Oh, it's so and good. That's giving the Holy Spirit room to play. And yeah. you know, so I think that's yeah. that's what we're that's what we're yeah, no, it's a it's a it's again it's the it's the bus ride, you know, that I love to go on and my my friend back in the day it was a little scared, but it it's an amazing, you know, imagining of a different way forward. And I wasn't planning to shamelessly plug all of the listeners, you know, to the podcast know about this, but my publisher choir came out with a, a book a few weeks ago called Sitting in the Shade of Another Tree. Cool. It's called what, looks- what we learn, what we learn by listening to other faiths. And my, so they asked me to write a chapter for it. And the chapter I wrote is called Zen Merton, or it's called Zen Merton, Suzuki and me about DT oh. Suzuki and Merton and Zen like 10, 13 years ago and sort of the opening it provided for me and how it continues to affect me. So I think the listening to listen, not, not to teach, but the listening to listen of somehow 
those people you do not expect are actually opening us up to go deeper into the depths of our own tradition and, and ultimately into God. And I think for, and the quote I thought about when you're talking about the Christianity of the future is Picasso said, you can honor your grandfather by wearing his old hat, or you can honor your grandfather by having grandchildren. And the grandchildren are going to do things that grandfather would never understand or never even approve of or even have the conceptual categories to even get at all. But yet the, the it's not to wear that. It's to wear it's to, to make their own hats and to move forward and to create a different world. So, man, I'm so grateful for this time and, and for this even just the chance for us to personally connect, man. You bring such a such a vibrancy. And a, I think the the hope and the tradition, even with cynicism towards an institution, that distinction playing out in thousands and millions of ways for people is so important for the future. And yeah, I'm so grateful for your time. The new big, the new big book of Christian mysticism by Carl McCollman, Amazon, other places, go get that now. Um, I think you will hear his heart as his heart and mind are a part of a larger heart and mind of the unfolding of the spirit in this world of the life of mystics and the knowers and the lovers of God. So Carl, can you let people know besides the book, where else can they find you tap in with you, follow along with your journey? Sure. sure. Well, I'm on, um, well, my own website is Anamkara, which is a Gaelic word. It means soul friend, Anamkara.com. That's A-N-A-M-C-H-A-R-A.com. So, you know, social media, you know, Facebook. Uh, I'm not as much on X these days, but you know, <laughs> a little bit little bit on threads on Instagram. So you can find me there. Um, the book itself is published by Broadleaf Books, which is an amazing publisher. Awesome. And, um, you know, and so, yeah, all your major online retailers support your local independent bookstore. You know, go grab a copy there. If you do want an autographed copy, you can order it directly from me on my website nice. or from the Cathedral Bookstore in Atlanta, Georgia, the Episcopal Cathedral Bookstore. They have autographed copies as well. Mm, nice. And um, yeah. And so, you know definitely get in touch. And um, if you want to study with me personally, I do have a Patreon page. People mm. make a monthly donation and then there's a, there's twice a month zoom calls. So that's another opportunity. Mm. That's awesome. I appreciate that, Carl, the new big, the new big book of Christian mysticism. Go get that, Carl. This was so great, man. I appreciate you. Thanks a lot. Okay.